Hi, welcome to another episode of Slightly Evolved. I am your host, Toby Fountain. Today I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Mark Ravenet from the University of Oslo in Norway. Hi Mark, how's it going? Hi Toby, I'm um, good, thanks. Another fellow Englishman in Scandinavia. Indeed, indeed. Well, we'll start with the first question we always start with. Can you tell us a bit about your first research paper? Yes, I can. And um, it's a really kind of, it was a very formative experience, actually. So it's not really on what I do these days. So it was on um, trophic pathways in freshwater ecosystems. And it was about looking at uh, how biogenic methane can and go up trophic levels and uh, uh, like uh, play a role in informing fish biomass. Huh. That's very different to your current work. Yeah, but it's kind of like a. It was my gateway, gateway paper, if uh, I could put it that way, into <laughs> research. I mean, I uh, actually didn't study biology as an undergraduate. Okay. So I started as a geographer, actually. Yeah. Um, and mainly specialised on ecology because I very quickly realised that I didn't like geography very much. <laughs> Um, so I did a lot of ecology courses and I did a master's degree in freshwater ecology and um, I was really interested in like ecosystem functioning and uh, particularly like fish related to fish and uh, trophic cascades and that kind of thing and so um, basically the whole idea came about um, when I came to to choose a master's research project. So at the time I was in London, I was at Queen Mary University. And um, I basically really wanted to go abroad. So I went to my uh, master's tutor and said to him, can you find somewhere for me to go? So we set up this really uh, tropical, this great experiment in a lake in Kenya. And I was really excited to be going to Africa. And then like some, I can't remember what happened. I think there was a rebellion in the area or something. Oh, so. No. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he was saying to me, oh, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And then the next day it was like, I don't know, there was some awful massacre, like about oh. 10 miles from where we were supposed to go. So we changed tack entirely and I went to Finland instead. Oh, okay. um, yeah, so it was my first trip to Scandinavia. So I went to Yavaskila. Oh, yeah, cool. And so basically um, what we did was um, studied this fish called the ruff. Um, which is really, it's like a small perch, but it's got these horrible spines on it and it gives off this, it makes this terrible amount of mucus. It really is a, a horrible little fish. Um, and basically we, um, so my tutor, a guy called John Gray at Queen Mary, he'd done a lot of, uh, work on methanotrophic carbon. So if you're familiar with like, um, chemo uh, synthesis at, at uh, deep sea vents, hydrothermal vents. The same process actually occurs in a much perhaps uh, less cooler way in freshwater lakes. So you have this kind of like uh, decaying detritus at the bottom of lakes and particularly where there's no uh, low levels of oxygen or even complete uh, oxygen de deprivation. Uh, they are these methanotrophic bacteria, so they basically break down things like leaf matter and other organic material, and they synthesize it um, into methane. And um, so John had done a lot of work showing the uh, the small uh, larvae of uh, non-biting midges, coronamids, can feed off this carbon and and uh, source a lot of their biomass from it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, traditionally, you think of an ecosystem, you think of it being autotrophic so that the sun basically is the provider of energy via like photosynthesis. And um, no one had ever really checked whether uh, this could also move up the food chain into fish species. So we had this lake in mind because uh, one of our collaborators, a guy called Yari Sivaranta, in, um, Good Finnish pronunciation, I like it. Yeah, I was, I was quite impressed with it myself then, actually. <laughs> Um, in yeah, in Yavaskila, he and he and his uh, boss Roger Jones had done a lot of work on this particular lake, uh, Yivazyavi, I think it's called. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so basically, uh, they use a technique called stable isotope analysis to show uh, this this pathway. So basically, uh, stable isotope analysis. If you want me to explain it? Is um, uh, the the analysis of uh, isotope ratios. So, of course, 
um, radioactive isotopes decay very rapidly, but there are also um, uh, stable isotopes. And the ratio of, for example, uh, 12 to 13C uh, for carbon and uh, 14 and 15N uh, for nitrogen can be informative about um, diet, for example, in, in ecosystem studies. So, Is this, is this the same, same principle as like carbon dating? Um, it's slightly different. So carbon dating is based on um, the, de- the decay, right? So over okay. time, and uh, yeah. So in terms of those those isotopes have a half life. Uh, in this case, um, f- so for example, this is testing me now because it's been a while since <laughs> I've done it. But um, so if you have uh, thirteen carbon and then twelve carbon, thirteen carbon is heavier, so it takes. Um, so in uh, biological uh reactions is taken up less uh, readily than the lighter carbon 12 carbon and what that means is that you get these kind of like set fractionations as you go along uh, a food web that's probably where it's easiest to imagine and it's actually very hard to talk about this without showing you some kind of figure because then it becomes a bit more straightforward but what you can basically imagine is that if you eat if you're an animal and you eat some kind of food source when you eat that food source you have you, it leaves a carbon signal in you essentially, and you there's a thing called fractionation, mm-hmm. which is when uh, you take up more of the light isotope than the um, the heavier one, and that therefore puts you at sort of like a a specific ratio compared to your diet. And if you know the ratio, the sort of general uh, expected fraction or difference between an organism and its prey or food item then you can essentially say okay this organism derives like say 50 percent of its carbon from this source and 50 percent of its carbon from another source right. that makes sense yeah. and you can also do that with nitrogen so nitrogen shows trophic level right so on tip on average uh, there's like a, a 3.4 per mil per mil is just a measure of isotope ratio um difference between an organism and uh, its food source and so you can track trophic level and also um, carbon source it's a, it, it's there are other isotopes as well which are used in things like um, determining fish migration for example there's strontium calcium ratios which can tell you like certain regions of the ocean have specific signals and I mean it's it, it's a good method um, it's a bit uh, what's the word uh, not inaccurate, but it's not it's not the most fine tuned method. Um, I think perhaps things like environmental DNA uh, or these uh, sort of metagenomic analyses are probably more likely to give you a more fine scale analysis of, say, diet. Like DNA barcoding, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. But this is more of a um, this allows you to like see what's synthesized in tissue. So when you look at diet, I mean, the traditional way to have done it, like over the last sort of century essentially is is just to look in the stomach of the organism you're studying um but that that's like a kind of a blurred picture because organisms eat things or swallow things that they don't assimilate and uh, also it's a snapshot right if you look at one fish's stomach you basically only see what it's eaten in the last few hours whereas if you take an isotopic isotopic ratio you can get an idea of diet um over a longer period right and so we uh, use this method to basically look at uh, ratios of carbon and also nitrogen in the fish in this uh, lake. And basically, Yari had noticed this really um, extremely negative signal in some fish he caught uh, during his PhD. And so the hypothesis was, well, maybe these fish are going down to um, feed on the, the methanotropic carbon in these uh, midge larvae. And the reason it would be very negative is because basically that carbon had been recycled again and again, if you think, right? So it was leaf matter that maybe was then decomposed and bacteria had broken it down and it become more and more decomposed. And every time that happens, it removes more of the lighter isotope, making a very negative signal uh, because isotopes are measured relative to, to a standard. And so um, it's basically like a, a very clear fingerprint. And we showed that um these rough they 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 basically go through this uh shift over their life cycle so the larger rough once they get bigger they they seem to feed more deeply in the lake 
and um, that means that they likely enter the uh, anoxic zone, the zone at the bottom of the lake with no uh, oxygen, and feed on these coronamids. And we use some models to basically estimate that maybe they derive about 17% of their biomass from this uh, methanotrophic carbon. So this is the, the claim to fame of this paper, which is um, doesn't sound as grand as it should do. Uh, it's that it's probably one of the first papers to show that this could happen in a freshwater system. Um, but yeah, so it was really good fun to do. Um, it was a really interesting time as a student. So I was like, I think 22 at the time and very talkative. And you lived in Finland, so you know that that <laughs> go down very well. Was it a culture shock? Well, I mean, Yari is a good friend of mine now, but uh, I spent the first three weeks uh, convinced that he hated me, um, <laughs> mainly because he almost never spoke to me. <laughs> so we spent several weeks on a boat together. And uh, well, not obviously we came back in the evenings, but um, I mean, I found it quite a struggle at first, um, particularly just there was just no small talk at all and i mean he's especially he's a he's from lati and i think he's like a son of a farmer or something like that so he was probably even less talkative than the average finn um but i, I mean, it was a really great experience and it was kind of like the start of a bit of a travel bug for me actually i realized i can do research and go to interesting places um and i really loved it it was uh a really good experience. How did you feel about uh, sauna? Because as an English, as an English person, we're not famous for you know our relaxed um, attitude towards nudity. Let's say no, um, no, and uh, I struggle with it. But you know, years have gone by now, and I doubt I would feel that way now. But um, yeah, it was quite difficult. Uh, the first time I went in, I was actually a bit drunk. Uh, <laughs> pick up, uh, like you know, get my confidence up and uh, that was not a good idea because I came out first of all I didn't realize that Finnish people really like to talk in the sauna mm. so uh, when I left the sauna I was considerably drunker and probably close to collapsing um, because of the heat and also I mean it was you know actually I really enjoyed it once I'd gone in there but um, at the time my then girlfriend came to visit me and we got invited to go for dinner at a guy's house and after the dinner, he said, let's all go to the sauna together. And that was when I had to sort of say, look, I really appreciate the fact that you've cooked us dinner, but I can't sit in a room with you and your wife naked. It just doesn't feel right. Um, but no, I think it's a really nice uh, a really nice thing, actually. And it's good that they're not ashamed of anything. I mean, they shouldn't be. No, I think it's really actually a really good thing for positive body image if you get used to seeing a array of people as you grow up. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, okay, so they don't have sauna in Norway, but I think uh, that kind of lack of uh, um, shame or worry is is also quite common here. And it's it's nice. It's a very progressive attitude. But so was it was it all this time in in hot environments that changed what you wanted to do for your PhD, or what, how did you then transition? Because uh, as far as I'm aware, that's not what you did your PhD on. No, well, I, I mean, there was some relation. Basically, I was, I've always kind of been interested in evolution, but um, and I even took a few courses as an undergrad. But I kind of always had this feeling of like, well, it's not really something I can probably study, so I won't bother trying pursuing it too hard. And then um, it just so happened that my master's tutor's mate, uh, a guy called Chris Harrod, had a yeah, PhD position going, and he, uh, Chris, is a specialist in stable isotopes. So basically, the method I just used for my Oh. masters fit to what he was interested in and I thought great um let's give it a go and it was on stickleback um ecology at the time and uh, I mean I I got the position and I started to read a lot about sticklebacks even before I started because I didn't really know much about them and then I was like wow this is really cool why uh, and I mean it didn't really take me very long to think hmm trophic ecology is kind of boring I can study <laughs> evolution now um and so i mean I, I all worked out in the end but i guess there, so there was always like a kind of going to be a bit of a population genetics um aspect to the phd so chris had done his uh, postdoc in max planck in germany where a lot of st early stickleback genetics work was done and he'd sort of seen them as a model basically he'd come to northern ireland as a new 
uh, faculty member and realised that no one had ever studied them in Ireland. And Ireland has this kind of interesting history. It's like the most isolated part of Europe. Uh, it has a really different fish fauna because it was probably the, one of the first. Uh, well, it was the first to be cut off from continental Europe. So none of the fish species you find in places like France and Germany or even England made it to Ireland. And he was like, this is a really cool place to study sticklebacks. Um, so, I mean, I did do quite a lot of stable isotopes as a PhD student, actually, but I sort of very quickly became um, enamored by population genetics. Um, I realized, you know, you could do this really cool stuff and it kind of became my thing. Um, well, well, at least some of it is. So I really hated the lab work, actually. I absolutely despised lab work really uh, at, at the time. It's, it's changed a bit now i like it a lot more now but um super stressful when you start out right yeah especially if you've never i mean if you think as well like before that the only lab work i'd ever really done was either cutting a fish open or like <laughs> measuring soil samples right so to suddenly have to do things like uh, well extract dna with phenochloroform which to this day <laughs> remains one of my biggest fears uh, although i can do it um, you know, it's something that I didn't enjoy very much at the time, handling these deadly chemicals it's and stuff. It's pretty much the most dangerous chemical that most like biology labs will have, right? It's uh, very nasty stuff. Yeah, I actually had to do it again recently for some pack biosequencing, but um, at the time I hated it. But, but anyway, it was really um, kind of just became my love and I started to read more about speciation as well. Um, because obviously that's where a lot of stickleback research has gone over the last couple of decades. Um, and I think I originally came from, from it more of a uh, phenotypic level, really, looking at phenotypic differences between populations and also trying to relate that to population genetic differences. So using microsatellites to show that populations were diverging or under the process of divergence. Um, and it's kind of all taken off from there. You know, I've become more and more uh, interested in the genomics and genetics aspect of this research. And if you'd have said that to me, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, I would have never believed it was going to happen. But that's how I ended up here. Yeah, it's, it, I think that's a kind of common thing, right? A lot of people have kind of started off from the more ec ecological angle. And then as the, the whole genomics and explosions happen, we've been swept along with it. And you have to quickly adapt to all of these new methodologies. But I mean, I think, I think at school, I always found genetics to be quite boring or quite, it just mm. wasn't taught in a very interesting way. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't mm. really until, yeah, I had similar, once I started, you know, my bachelor's degree, that's when you start really seeing what can be done and, and you easily get swept up in it. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, it was like, Okay, so I'd studied a lot of this stuff. For example, I, I knew a lot about glaciation because of my undergrad. And then I was like, oh, wait, you, can, you mean you can use DNA to like study how glaciation has affected animal populations? I mean, to be honest with you, originally phylogeography was my first love. I was just oh, really? really into this idea of like recreating population movements. But that, that obviously has a very strong fit to speciation. Uh, I mean, you know, hybrid zones between... Um, uh, lineages of various species that have been in different glacial refugias have been a major uh, part of speciation research, especially in the genetics level. And I just found that really fascinating. And that's kind of what fed this interest. But it did, uh, you know, just to go back to the thing about not liking lab work, it did nearly um, come to an end because uh, I've listened to a few of your podcast now and heard people talk about the old methods and I actually had a lot of a, a big taste of the old methods so the lab I was in at the time didn't uh, they did microsatellites and there were two ways they did them there was one group who used the proper like you know old-fashioned uh, uh, radiation and x-ray method or whatever it is mm -hmm. that they do and then uh, we use this method called a LICOR oh the LICOR yeah wow. yeah and um, I remember um, more or less nearly ending up in tears in the lab <laughs> because I could never get the bloody gels to set properly. And then when I did set them properly, like I just always went wrong. And um, my saving grace was when I went away to visit, uh, to do a course. And when I came back, 
um, my supervisor said, another, another supervisor of mine said, uh, oh, we just bought an ABI. And I thought, excellent. And if they hadn't have done that, I think I might have just given up uh, <laughs> population genetics. Yeah, I can definitely, we were lucky. I was about to say you should have come down to Sheffield because we had a... Um the old ABI 3730 and it, I, from everyone I never used any of the older methods but from everyone I talked to it was it's a huge improvement or just made everything so much more easy even though that machine also broke down a lot yeah yeah well <laughs> so did ours but I luckily had a very nice collaborator in the Max Planck who helped me a lot with uh, getting the protocols ready and everything but I mean even even microsatellites which are kind of they're, you know, they're not, they still have their uses, right? Of course, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I'll always be singing the phrases of microsatellites. So. Yeah, I must say, though, I'm kind of glad to not have to work on them anymore because even even when we had these, like, Kyogen um, multiplex kits and everything, they're still a, a real, um, you know, they were, they were still quite difficult to get working and the ABI often didn't work. And the other thing I really hated about microsatellites is calling the... Uh, fragment profiles yeah um, i really felt i remember um teaching an undergrad how to do that and i really felt like you know, this is the point where like art and science meet because you, you have to kind of you know you have this feeling of science being incredibly empirical and of course of course it is but but you also have to use your judgment and i really felt like that was a time where you know, judging these fragment profiles it was something that often felt to me like it was very subjective yeah, so for people who might not be familiar for, for what this entails, you essentially get like graphs with these peaks where the microsatellite alleles are and you have to click on, you bet it's called binning, so you, you set where you expect the allele to be and if there's a peak in that area, then you call it as an allele. But um, often these peaks are not particularly clear. There's quite a lot of variation and some overlap, so it takes kind of some yeah some skill or you know some some let's say knowledge of the primers you're working with to kind of properly judge what is a real allele and what is you know noise around it so one of the important things in working with microsatellites often is you have the same person calling the microsatellites so you have some kind of consistency that they're being called in the same way um but yeah that's one of the advantages of moving to snips and things like that is it's much more automated and there's less of this kind of hands-on uh, analysis, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's still subjectivity, of course, in how you're going to filter data and that kind of thing, sure. but um, and methods used and whatever. But I, I definitely feel more comfortable with sequences than I do with uh, fragment profiles. Mm. So I was quite glad to make the transition away from that. So I was thinking, so your main research now is, is gone on to speciation. I was thinking we could maybe frame this conversation around a recent targeted review that you wrote and then maybe you can bring some of your examples of your work into this as well. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, um, obviously speciation has been a big question for a very long time. I think it's been pondered probably in most human societies for thousands of years, but Darwin kind of um, solidified our thinking about it in, in recent time. But um, it's, it's always been a contentious subject, not least because of its, uh, you know, it's, it's linked to the question of our, the origin of ourselves. But, but setting that aside, I mean, there's always been a lot of debates in speciation. Um, and one of the big ones has focused on uh, whether speciation can proceed with gene flow. So if you think of speciation as a process where reproductive isolation evolves between two diverging lineages, uh, the question has always has really been, especially since the modern synthesis uh, in the 1930s, when you know population geneticists and actual evolutionary biologists got together and you know found the, made the foundation of the modern field we call evolutionary biology today. The question has been, um, can this process occur when gene flow um, is present? Well, one of the major arguments has been that no, it can't, and um, that's uh, really kind of come from that came from Ernst Mayer, who um, even in his definition of what a species is, and we could spend a whole hour talking about what a species is. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, most people work with this biological species concept that they're um, reproductively isolated groups of organisms, they're populations that basically don't interbreed with one another. And I mean, uh, Mayer set out uh, 
the, the biological species concept. I mean, in it, he basically defines species as not interbreeding. Uh, but then there's been various arguments over the geography of speciation, and that's kind of progressed for a long time. Like in 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 that sense, geography is a kind of proxy for gene flow. So if if species are in sympatry, they occur in the same environment, and they can easily exchange genes. Can they still diverge? Yeah, because I think I think like the because at least when I remember first learning about speciation, the kind of easy example to think of is allopatric speciation, right? Where you have like a natural you know, thing like an earthquake or something splitting a population into two, which are separated by some sort of barrier, and then that's very obvious that differences develop between the two, and eventually they are uh, they can't reproduce, and they're sort of defined as species. But you're talking about now, like in sympatry, where there isn't this kind of natural, necessarily a natural kind of geographic barrier to to interbreeding. There may be some other barriers involved. Yeah, absolutely. And so the the uh, example you gave, like allopatry, I mean, you only basically need time in that sense for mutations to arise that cause incompatibilities when species meet again. Uh, whereas the thinking kind of changed a lot over the last few decades with the study of ecological speciation, which really became like a hot button topic where you could have divergent natural selection. So let's say you've got a lake with two food resources maybe one is benthic around the edges of the lake and the other one is pelagic like a zooplankton or something and you have a fish species and it can diverge it can become polymorphic so some fish feed on the benthic prey and some fish feed on the pelagic prey and then the, the hypothesis is that the thinking is that um, as they specialize and adapt to these two divergent environments basically any hybrids between them will be less fit and um, they experience natural selection and so, and that's also true for migrants between the population, and that basically has the effect of reducing gene flow. Mm. So, this whole body of work, and a lot of that actually came from sticklebacks originally, but there are also many other uh, species where this principle has been uh, inferred or at least demonstrated to some extent. The thinking was okay that divergent natural selection could could allow. Um, speciation to progress to at least some stage mm -hmm. so i mean definitive examples of sympatric speciation are, are fairly far and few between and one of the reasons is because it's difficult to prove for sure that species didn't um you know uh speciate somewhere else like i say in allopatry and then they just now co-occur together right to rule out that um but yeah so this divergence selection um, became really the kind of the main message of the field for a long time and uh, that's kind of where my work began so I actually did a lot of work on ecological speciation in sticklebacks in Ireland mm -hmm. um, particularly between lake stream sticklebacks so uh, maybe I should ex introduce the stickleback a bit it's yes. this kind of mod yeah it's this mod it's the doyen of uh, speciation <laughs> research I think um, and it's I don't think you can get away with calling it a non-model organism anymore no I don't um, think so either no, I mean there was a time back in the day when you could, but well, how many how many how many spines does this stickleback have? Is it a nine spine, three spine, or uh, three? Yeah, sorry, you're you're right. It's the three spine stickleback right. I'm talking about, Gasterosteus aculeatus. Um, but it's uh, although nine spine is you know going to make a resurgence in the next few years. Watch watch this space. I'm sure it'll be the next. <laughs> um, but no, so the three spine. Actually, so most people assume it's a freshwater fish, actually, but it's not. Um, they, they seem to be largely marine. Okay. And um, they've recolonized freshwater environments. This is linked back to what I mentioned before with glaciation and um, uh, like global climate change. So as, as the ice sheets retreated, particularly in Europe and North America, sticklebacks have invaded freshwater environments and they seem to very rapidly adapt into basically this completely freshwater lifestyle and then between different freshwater environments there's been adaptations to the different habitat regimes so the kind of typical one is actually the example i used before this benthic prey uh, around the edges of a lake in the shallow waters and pelagic prey in the the uh, deeper parts of the lake and this this kind of benthic uh, limnetic is called axis it also occurs between streams and, and lakes so in a stream you have this fast moving uh, flow regime with a complex structurally complicated environment where maybe you have large insects living in the, the the bed of the river and so the fish develop 
uh, sorry, the fish adapt to that kind of um, environment. They're usually deep-bodied, and uh, they have differences in manoeuvring behaviour and so on. And in the lake, you get more zooplankton and um, uh, pelagic production. So fish often have very slender bodies, and they're able to uh, swim for long periods of time in order to filter feed. And so basically, you get this divergent selection, which again. Uh, causes this divergence in the ecotypes, the level of gene flow between them is lowered because of divergent selection. So the stickleback has been studied in, in many different aspects, partly because it has uh, some very obvious traits which diverge. And one of the most famous ones is armor plates um, between marine and freshwater environments and also within freshwater environments. And that, so basically the stickleback was one of the first species where we were able to um, understand the genetic basis of a major morphological change uh, in the wild. So, you know, you had you have Drosophila and the house mouse and all these, actually, you know, I would say true model species for whatever uh, field of interest, medical research, as well as evolutionary biology. Mm. But the stickleback is kind of the supermodel because it is a, you know, widespread uh, organism that we know a lot about its ecology. Moving on from sticklebacks back to speciation, as um, the sequencing technology has developed and population genomics has exploded as a field, um, it's, it's become possible to, to look at many, many different markers in the genome. So a lot of early stickleback studies showed, hey, look, these two ecotypes are divergent and they also show strong, uh, or at least some element of uh, reproductive isolation. You know, some of, some of my work, included showed that we see these differences between for example lake stream fish but with the population genomic area what we could see error was what we could see was that there are actually some loci which are very differentiated and very different between the two uh, ecosystems but others which show no difference at all and that kind of has that that was also apparent in other species too but that led towards this understanding that, okay, differentiation in the genome is, and by that I mean between populations, is not uniform, right? It's, uh, it's varied along the genome. Mm -hmm. And some, this kind of emerging view of the genetic uh, speciation, sorry. So the emerging view became that speciation might be genic rather than, so it happens at the level of the gene rather than the uh, individual mm -hmm. so philosophically that's kind of a bit complicated at first but it's actually fairly straightforward so basically there was this famous paper in 2001 that kind of solidified the thinking around this idea but basically you could have divergent selection on a single gene in a genome and that gene is involved in reproductive isolation between two populations so that gene will stay resistant to gene flow. Whereas because of recombination and other processes, other genes are able to freely exchange between these diverging populations. And so the thinking was that if you look at a genome, if you look at the differentiation between two populations and the signal along the genome, you can essentially identify regions of the genome that are resistant to gene flow and therefore perhaps identify the location in the genome of speciation genes. It all sounds so uh, so alluringly simple. Exactly, but it turns out that it wasn't. Um, <laughs> and I, I mean, I shouldn't give the impression, by the way, that um, like no one ever knew this. Uh, actually, it's been known for quite a long time that um, there are other processes which can cause these patterns. Um, but I think that it's taken a while for maybe different parts of the field to all kind of catch up and understand uh you know the, the the confounding factors that can cause similar signals so i mean we have this but basically it's become a very contentious thing in the over the last sort of decade essentially there were many many papers when uh, things like rad sequencing were first developed showing hey look the genome is heterogeneous there is like this pattern of peak and trough between these two species when you do a scan of fst 
Um, maybe this is a speciation gene. Maybe this is a region of the genome involved in speciation. And the kind of excitement and the models that that developed and everything, uh, it, it kind of ran away a little bit. And there's been a few people who've been saying, well, hang on a minute, you need to be a bit more cautious and we need to think actually this could be another process. So part, I'm, I'm kind of impressed. We've, we've been talking about speciation for a while and I don't think you've used a single metaphor yet. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if that's conscious or not, actually. Um, I mean, I, I, the metaphor thing is a bit, um, that's also contentious. Uh, so, I mean, a lot of people call, called these, origin, these regions speciation islands. And one of the reasons I tried not to use the metaphors is because I became like totally enamored with these when I first read them. I think, I think the Speciations Islands, some of the early papers were being published like as I finished my PhD. Mm. And I remember being really excited by them. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized the metaphor is uh, not necessarily a great one. I mean, first of all, sometimes in metaphors in general, I feel like they can be sort of a bit hackneyed and, and hammered out to fit the various purposes. So you see lots of punny titles in papers and stuff. And, you know, I like that. I can't, uh, can't go after that too much. But, but the problem is that they're not really very clear a lot of the time, um, particularly the speciation islands metaphor, because the problem with that is then you get, so the models that developed, I should say this before I take yeah. apart the metaphor, are Essentially, first of all, you have one region of the genome and that becomes divergent. That's the island. And then some of the conceptual models that grew from this were that over time, stronger divergent selection that's linked to that region, that first region basically allows it to grow in the genome and you get these continents of differentiation. And then you have like a seascape and uh, the sea level is the neutral baseline of the genome and so on. And I, I think the problem is that, like, what is an island, right? Yeah. I mean, um, when does an island start? When does it stop? And this, I think it wasn't until I really started to work with this date, this kind of data myself, that it really became apparent to me that, you know, this is not a helpful metaphor anymore because um, let, let's take, for example, you're looking at a genome scan and you see this massive FST peak and then there's a big dip and it goes back down to zero and then it goes up again within like a very short space. Is that two islands? Is it one big island and you're just not measuring it properly? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't want to attack the metaphors too much because they have been very helpful and, you know, I know some of the people that develop them and I like them and, uh, you know, I have no... Um, I think it was a useful tool, but I think we're at the stage now where we should leave this behind. Um, but having said that, I do think that metaphors can serve their place. And in particular, I think the metaphors genome as a landscape, um, especially genome scan data as a landscape is actually useful. Um, I agree with that. I think that's definitely true. Yeah, I think because, and this is now kind of like um drawing in my geographical background a little bit, actually. Um, if you, like early studies of landscapes, particularly mountains, like fascinated a lot of early geologists and people like Charles Lyell, who was a bit of a fan of Darwin's. And there was a lot of different opinions about how these landscapes could have occurred. So uh, there was a big field of catastrophism and they all believed that basically mountains could only ever, ever occur when there was like a huge catastrophe, like a massive flood eroding a load of uh, sedimentary rock or something like that. And then there were other people who believed in gradualism in the slow process and the build-up. And I think actually, as a metaphor, la la a landscape makes sense because we see this, we can generate these landscapes from doing a genome scan analysis. We don't really know the exact processes that uh, have produced the patterns we see. We have some idea but actually finding out exactly what caused this peak versus that peak is not straightforward at all. Yeah, so that kind of brings, I guess, one of the big issues has been that there are many processes that can influence whether you find these peaks or not, not just barriers, like genes responsible for reproductive isolation, right? 
Yeah. So um, one of the big ones also got a uh, metaphor. Um, so uh, there was a paper in 2008 that called them incidental islands. And the idea in this case is that if you use a measure like FST, so FST is obviously genetic differentiation between populations, and that it's a relative measure of differentiation. So that means it requires within population diversity to calculate it. So if there is a process that can reduce within population diversity, that will create um, a very strong peak in FST. So, I mean, one of the obvious ones, divergent selection will do that because it will create like a selective sweep um, where diversity is reduced around the locus under selection. But another process would be something like background selection. And so in that case, uh, maybe you have a very important functional gene or, or something like that where there's a small deleterious mutation. And so there'll be purifying selection to remove that deleterious mutation from the population and that reduces diversity. Uh, so that can also, if you have different background selection between two populations, that can also generate these peaks. Mm. Um, and then there are also other processes. So the term that's often used to describe this is link selection, which actually I personally dislike um, because I don't think it's very clear. Mm -hmm. But you, I think you can, you can have linked background selection, for example. So link selection just refers to background selection and also um, positive selection that's not related to speciation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you can have, so when they say link, they mean any, this is sort of mod, uh, this is modulated in a way by recombination rate. So when recombination rate is high, these processes aren't really a big problem. But when it's low, uh, the effects of these processes can be much larger uh, and maintained for longer too. So you could have, for example, small selective sweeps which might be involved in local adaptation but aren't involved in the speciation process. And those would reduce diversity and also create these false positive peaks in the genome that would perhaps be interpreted as islands when in fact they're not anything to do with speciation at all. I guess that's one thing that's, that's, that's benefited from having all of this genomic information as well, is that it's now possible to calculate recombination rate across the whole genome. So you can see whether variation in recombination rate matches up with where these islands occur, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, to be honest with you, uh, like this field being so contentious, that's kind of what makes it exciting, right? Because people are like, okay, this needs to be looked at and then suddenly we're like well we've got the tools to do that now so let's do it and yes absolutely there's a a good number of papers now which are coming out uh, which explicitly deal with this problem they estimate recombination in various manners and then they test for associations between barrier loci and uh, or speciation genes and recombination rate um, the problem is, I think, that we have to tread a fine line here. Like a lot of the criticisms of the speciation islands model has been that, like, oh, it's too simplistic an explanation, there's another process. But I sometimes feel that, like, the other end of the scale, this um, incidental islands or balance, uh, background selection models are almost, like, just the same side of, a, of the, uh, sorry, the opposite side of the coin, if you see what I mean. They're like, you know, okay, well, you can't say all peaks are because of background selection either. You know, it's likely it's most the most likely explanation is a landscape is a kind of composite of many different processes. And so, I mean, there are some who suggest that we should use recombination rate as kind of like a way to throw out any um, highly divergent loci that occur in low recombining areas. Um, and I think that's problematic because one possibility is that low regions of recombination are in themselves adaptive or at least beneficial to the speciation process uh, in that they don't break apart adaptive combinations of alleles, for example. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that if you're diverging, if you're a species that's uh, two populations that are diverging, then um, adaptive loci are more likely to arise and persist in low recombination regions, for example. We should be careful not to sort of replace one model with the other, is what I think. Right. And that we should do everything we can to sort of account for the confounding factors which can produce patterns in genome scan data that we might misinterpret as speciation genes. 
So this kind of goes back to this this review that you uh, were the lead author of um, yes. recently. So actually now the title makes a bit more sense. Now I know your geography background because it's a, yes. a roadmap for finding barriers to, to gene flow. Uh, it wasn't my idea to call it a roadmap, actually, <laughs> okay. which, which is sad because it would have been a much, uh, it would have been a nice, you know, nice extra metaphor. It would have definitely fit the narrative. Um, but maybe you could talk about just like what, was the motivation for making this uh, roadmap and what were some of the key key points and key responses that you sort of had to this? Well, so this whole idea kind of came out um, a few years ago. So there's, there's no denying the whole paper was driven by uh, a, a paper in molecular ecology in 2014 by uh, Tammy Cookshank and Matt Han, where they basically uh, laid out a very important uh, criticism of the speciation islands paradigm involving a lot of these things I've already mentioned that you know we need to make sure that we look for background selection and these other processes and uh, it got me and a couple of others thinking like okay you know um, we need to sort of forge a way ahead here and think of ways to address these problems in a productive manner and we actually had a symposium uh, ESEV in 2015 that was the where the kind of um, seed for this review was set and we decided okay we're going to write one and um, when we were writing it it really very quickly became kind of a bit bleak you realized um, okay it, it felt like we were writing something which was going to end with the message <laughs> this is really complicated and we decided, decided and we all decided that that wasn't what we wanted to do um, you know a field like this is incredibly complicated, especially maybe for a new PhD student or someone starting out their career in this kind of work. So what we wanted to do was sort of clarify a way forward as best we can and think of, you know, if you were to, to draw up the, the perfect research program to study a species uh, and study the speciation process, what would it be? And um, to sort of give a bit of advice to the field. So, I mean, in some hands, on one hand, it has been criticised of perhaps being a little bit too optimistic. Um, and I do think uh, it's also, you know, if you were, I think one of the responses we got to the the paper that was also published alongside it was that if you were to do everything in the roadmap, then you'd need like several decades of research to, <laughs> and, uh, you know, a billion euro budget or something like that, <laughs> which is a fair point. But, you know, I think there's definitely uh, a message there, which is, you know, you can just if you think carefully before you start a research program on speciation, you can design it in a way that can at least account for some of the, the issues in the field. The well, reason I think this is very interesting is I think sometimes people outside of research might get the impression that scientists are always on the same page about something. And I, I want to try and get across that you know, it's not really the case. And a lot of the best science, the way science gets pushed forward is by having these kind of, these active discussions and arguments in the field. And this is one of the big ones that's, that's going on now. So I think this this review has been a really cool way of like highlighting some of the the, the difference of opinions and, and the, the, the issues holding the field back, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, um, I'm glad you said that, like, of course, that's one, you know, that's one of the reasons we wanted to so, to write it. So thank you for that. But I think also, I mean, there's a real personal aspect to this review, which is, to be honest, like, I find science really hard. I love science, but I really don't always understand it. Uh, even as a sign, you know, scientist working in this field, speciation research is complicated and population geno genetics and genomics are complicated as well. So part of the reason we actually wrote the review, I wrote it for someone like me, I thought, right, if I was coming into this and I wanted to understand as much as I could, what would demystify it for me? Because I think um, one of the reasons that this kind of contention has occurred in the field is that you have these people who are very strong in population genetic theory, and they've noticed things which empiricists have perhaps overlooked. And I mean, for, for example, like the idea that background selection can produce a peak in FST, I think it was first discussed in a paper from Brian Charlesworth in like 1992. <laughs> wow. You know, so there's not really any excuse that it hasn't 
uh, we didn't know about it. It's just taken me a long time for the field to sort of um, understand that, okay, this is a problem. And I think it's just, you know, it, it's a good kind of um, example of, as you say, how science is not like this flawless process where everyone understands everything all the time. It, it, it's, a, it's a human process. And sometimes uh, important findings get overlooked. And it's not until a bit later when someone with a specific knowledge about something says, well, hang on a minute, you need to consider this. And um, yeah, I mean, the review is an attempt to make sense of this and to kind of level the playing field a little bit so we can start from, or at least I hope, start from a, an area of knowledge where we can all work forward from. So what have you learned from first doing the review and from getting the feedback from it? Yeah, that's a great question. So I've learned a lot about recombination because that was something that I always didn't like very much. Um, I, I think, so first of all, I've learned that, yeah, recombination rate is really important. And I think, so the review basically lists these uh, what, five confounding factors, right? So I haven't mentioned them yet. So they're demographic history, background selection, positive sweeps, recombination rate variation, mutation rate variation, and gene density. And if I had to choose the most important one, I would probably, well, actually, this is going to be a bit contentious itself, but I would say recombination rate variation is one of the most important processes, followed by a demographic history. And I, I really didn't, you know, when we started writing the review, the kind of understanding of the importance of recombination rate variation in speciation was only really beginning to dawn. There are only a couple of papers. Now, there's many, many uh, publications on this. In fact, I just finished reading one about 20 minutes before we started this discussion. <laughs> um, so uh, that, that was a real insight. And it was also interesting to learn how there's been a kind of dearth of research into particularly into models of speciation with gene flow. So for example, background selection is a real big problem, but there aren't many good um, like theoretical papers or even empirical papers, which look at the role of background selection specifically in a speciation context. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? Yeah. So um, basically I learned a lot that there's so much more to, to uncover. And actually that was really important for me because I felt a little bit like with the genome, and I think a lot of people also felt like this a few years ago that with the genomic era, we were going to solve speciation. Like everyone would know what, what causes it. And you know, that's not true at all. Um, and I think one of the best responses we got to the review and, and they were all excellent, but, but perhaps one of my favorite points is something that Stuart Baird wrote in his, uh, review, which is basically that, um, you know, 10 years of sequencing data hasn't, and like huge amounts of sequencing data hasn't really brought us any closer to the question that we thought we were going to answer, which is how speciation unfolds. And it made me realize that um, we shouldn't be so kind of in love with these new techniques. We should really spend the time about thinking, thinking about how we're going to conduct our research in the most sort of effective way possible. I mean, there are even simple things you could do, you know, for example, like designing your study so you include some populations in sympatry versus some populations in allopatry, just take a really simple example. And in doing that, you can effectively test whether gene flow is occurring or not, right? And that's kind of a fundamental question in this um, debate is really whether speciations occur with gene flow or not. Mm -hmm. And I think um, the main thing I learned that's left a big impression on me is that, you know, sequencing reams and reams of data is not the answer to everything. Do you still feel optimistic about it? I, I am optimistic because I think, first of all, others will come up with some good solutions. But, you know, you, for example, um, analytical techniques are becoming more and more sophisticated and i think they will help a great deal they won't solve everything but you know for example simulating data along a chromosome is becoming much much more straightforward than it's ever been you could do it won't i don't think it's too far off before we're able to do things like simulate 
multiple processes based on the knowledge we have of the genome. In fact, I saw something at ESEB where someone was doing this, not quite to a point where it would be applicable in this scenario, but you know, using their knowledge of annotation of a genome and recombination rate variation and mutation rate variation to actually simulate how they would expect, um, say, patterns of diversity along a chromosome to evolve. Mm-hmm. In, a, in a model species in Drosophila in this instance. And there are already quite a few papers that do that. So I think you know that, that will not be too far off for some of these uh, major organisms that we study for speciation. I also think um, there's a lot of promise for kind of experimental work. Um, and there's been some really nice, elegant examples of experimentation in sticklebacks. Uh, I think it will become even more, and other species too, Drosophila, obviously. Um, uh, I think it will become even more uh, elegant with the rise of things like transgenics. But, I mean, I think we're always probably going to be in a situation where there are some species where it's just not possible to do those kind of things. And we'll have to just kind of make some kind of best, best guess, best estimate as to what's happening. But I do think this, the field has a lot to to continue with, and I'm I'm excited to be part of it. Yeah, you actually include this. I just noticed in the, um, the response paper. I should say this this review is in the Journal of Evolutionary Biology in the August issue. I'll put a link in the podcast description. But you open one of the paragraphs with the quote: "I try all things. I achieve what I can." From Ishmael and Moby Dick. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, well, uh, yeah, and I think that quote really sums up, um, like, both mine and Anya, my co-author, Anya Westrom, on that uh, response. That really sums up how we feel about it. I've always felt this in research in general. Oh, you can moan about something until the cows come home, but it won't really solve any problems. So you need to sort of be proactive. And we can try lots of different things, and uh, hopefully some of them... Uh, make sense of the the landscape and I think for sure you know there's been contention but like the last decade has still taught us quite a lot we might not know the answer about the origin of species but we certainly know a lot more about um, the processes involved in in um, divergence and the genes that might be involved and the importance of recombination for, for example. I mean that's Super interesting like debate and I look forward to hearing more about it as it as it goes on. But what what are you up to when you're when you're not discussing the pitfalls of speciation and research and doing your own work? <laughs> well, um I, I try my best to have a good work life balance actually. I think um I can recall a time where I finished my PhD and someone said to me, What are your hobbies? <laughs> and I was like, uh I don't have any, but I do now. I do now. I'm not such a sad, sad git. Um, so, I mean, I do my best to try and keep fit as much as possible. Um, so I do a lot of things like cycling and uh, swimming. I'm trying to run again, but I have an injury, so that's not oh, been no. so great. Yeah, it's a shame, but oh well. Uh, when it's winter in Norway, I try and ski, but I'm absolutely dreadful at it. And Do you have, do you have snow? Like, is it pretty reliable to have snow where you are? Uh, actually, last this year's snow was really bad, and all the Norwegians are very upset about that because <laughs> they couldn't ski. I mean, I didn't really care that much, uh, but it is nice. To, I mean, so the, one of the nice things about Oslo is there's this beautiful forest all around it, and it's very easy to get to. So um, it makes sense to use it. So I do a lot of mountain biking in that at the weekends when I can. Cool. Um, and then um, my guilty pleasure is probably video games, which oh. I. What are you playing at the moment? Um, the New Legend of Zelda. Oh, um, me too. Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, I bought myself a Nintendo Switch as a present for publishing the review. <laughs> so um, I, I actually don't really play games very much anymore. But uh, Zelda is like my my guilty pleasure. Well, no, it's not. I'm not really embarrassed about it. Actually, no, you so, shouldn't be. You shouldn't be yeah. embarrassed. Um, but uh, I will say one thing about the Red Target review. Like, my life goal is to work a quote from The Legend of Zelda into a research paper. <laughs> so, so you mentioned the um, Moby Dick quote, but yeah. actually I did 
everything I could to try and find a line from The Legend of Zelda to fit that, but I couldn't. So in the end, we went for Moby Dick. There, there aren't that many, as I remember, there aren't that many dialogue pieces in the, the new Legend of Zelda. No, there aren't, no. Um, Most of them so, start with Link. Yeah, exactly. Link, the so. divine beasts must be conquered. Oh, like yeah they do they, that, that sounds about right so <laughs> i couldn't find anything good but one day one day i'll get something in about the triforce or, or something <laughs> for sure um so yeah that's uh that's what uh, instead of reading papers that's what i spent my evenings doing oh, that's good i think playing playing computer games can be a good good stress relief thing as well and also very good like story storytelling yeah absolutely i think it's um I don't really like like spending four hours in front of a TV. It's just not really. It's very passive and boring. Yeah. And I, to be honest, if I do play a game, it's usually only ever one with a good story because yeah. you know it's that's what I'm interested in. Um, but it is. It's a rewarding experience. I mean, in a way as well. Like I don't do it very often, just because I often don't have time. So then it becomes much more of a treat. Mm. Um, you know, as a kid, I was a huge geek uh, and played loads of games. But now I don't do it so often. And, and you can learn a lot from video games, actually. That's another thing I think. So I'll give an example. Like, Well, I think uh, I learned a lot about um, nuclear proliferation treaties from Metal Gear Solid. Metal Gear Solid, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, and, and things like, um, oh, what did I play recently? Red Dead Redemption. That's a great game. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a story which is like about the American Wild West. Mm-hmm. And it, it was quite, you know, it's, it's historically fairly accurate. Well, that's perhaps a bit of a stretch, but, you know, it's set at a time in history. And it, it was just a, a kind of refreshing experience to play something and also kind of learn a bit about something else. It's actually funny. I noticed more and more sort of science that I, I've known through biology. Like there was a, I played a game recently called Horizon Zero Dawn. And at one point there was, there was talking about like um, quorum sensing. And things like that, like super specific, like biological terms. Like, yeah, and it's like, oh wow, I, I know that. Um, but then, I, I, on the flip side to that, I think um, being a researcher can kind of ruin that stuff. So I actually played Metal Gear again recently, and the genetics in that is oh, just. Oh no! Don't it's, tell me that. It's, yeah, it's it's actually kind of embarrassing when you play it back, and it had me cringing a lot of the time when they mentioned stuff about chromosomes. And it, I mean, it's not wrong, but it's also it just sounds really stupid. Um, yeah, you've got to try and keep that. I mean, my favorite film is Jurassic Park, and if you think about that too too long, then it's completely it's completely ruined. It. Even though there's a lot of there's a lot of research done by Michael Crichton on Jurassic Park, so yeah, and I think uh, well, I think Jurassic Park is. Uh, is a good exception, except for that one scene with the 3D uh, genome <laughs> viewing bit. That's virtual that's reality to do. That's what we everyone sort of thinks we do. Like they were doing it in 1993. Why aren't we using VR displays now? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it always makes me laugh that you know you use like basically a text file on a black and white terminal or something. <laughs> but but Jurassic Park's actually pretty sound. It's, I think the worst offender for films um, in my opinion is prometheus oh, have you seen that of course yeah i mean i'm a mass like alien is one of my favorite films i love it and prometheus and then also i don't know if you've seen the new one yeah i have i mean that's a little better but i, I really struggle with the whole kind of you know god being uh, involved in the evolutionary process and all this stuff and it's just all very anti-science i think and i i don't know it really spoiled it for me actually and plus the biologist in that film in prometheus is, sucks i mean he's like the worst character yeah i mean who and no biologist on earth would ever shove their face like see an organism that looked like a snake yeah an alien cobra thing and try and grab it exactly exactly although to be fair but i guess you're you're hit twice because the geographer in there is equally like stupid because he gets lost his one job is to map the whole place i know i know the only bloke with like a laser mapping device and who creates like this high density <laughs> 3d map and he's he's the only person who gets lost it's just a travesty uh, it really is oh that's cool awesome cool well thanks for talking about i really i really enjoyed it yeah, I enjoyed it too. Thanks a lot for having me on. We've actually known each other for for a while, but we don't. We've never really get to spend that much time. No, no. only at conferences, really. I guess.
Yeah, well, hopefully I can visit Uppsala one day. And if you ever come to Oslo, you must let me know. You're, thank you very much. Well, you're always welcome up here. Um, can people follow you on Twitter? They can. Um, I've actually forgotten my Twitter name. I think it's <laughs> Mark underscore Ravenet, I think. Um, but yes, they can follow me on that. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, and thank you all for listening. As always, you can get in contact with us on our email account, uh, which is slightlyevolvedpod at gmail.com. Get in contact with us on Twitter, which is at slightlyevolvedpod. Uh, and you can also join us on our Facebook group. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next week. <laughs>